and welcome to the Auto Car Business Powerlist 100 podcast. This is the series where we will be discussing topics that feature in our physical powerlist, which is a collection of the 100 most influential people within the automotive industry. I'm Autocars News Editor Felix Page, and with me today is Autocar Business Correspondent Nick Gibbs and Graham Stokes, who is VP at the Powerlist sponsor, Keyloop. This week, we're talking uh, designers and engineers, which I think it's probably fair to say over the past 20 years with the rise of EVs has really come to the fore. I think we've been talking about these people in a much more public sense. Maybe people are engaging with them more uh, from the customer side as well. Nick, why do you think we, we talk about people behind the scenes a bit more when we talk about the new car buying journey, the new car ownership experience? Well, if you're talking about um, if you're talking about designers, for example, um, they've become a increasingly more important to car companies because, you know, if you look at the an EV underneath, you know, it's it's wrong to say they're all the same, but the powertrain has very they don't have quite the same differentials that they in, in terms of a brand separation as they used to, so it becomes you know it's more important that the designer creates that brand, creates that excitement, and um, and and they've got a tough job, you know they really do, which is why they're being promoted to these positions of power because if you get it right, uh, like somebody like uh, Jerry McGovern at JLR. I mean, his 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 design has lifted that company to a to a, a place that uh, it almost seems impossible to believe that it could happen, given you know their relatively small size. So you know, if you if you get it right, then you could, uh, you have that engagement with the buyers that uh, that is all important. You know, if and it can smooth over a whole heap of of problems um, underneath in terms of you know perhaps your 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 costing isn't quite right compared to you know I mean look at the Chinese you know as we move into EVs it's. Uh, it, you know there might be um, there might be issues with software reliability. You know all these things could put off a customer. But if you get the design right, mm. you know you're in a very good place to then be able to sort out your other problems. Jeremy McGovern's an interesting example, isn't it? Because that's almost taken on a whole new importance as they set up the house of brands and each of the four JLR brands: Land Rover, uh, Range Rover, Discovery, Defender, and Jaguar. They each have to have a, a new image now. They have to establish a new presence. Absolutely. And this is why you need somebody to oversee the whole lot, uh, which is what Jerry was doing. And before you had, uh, you know, you had Jaguar and you had uh, Land Rover. Jerry obviously had uh, Land Rover with uh, Ian Callum on Jaguar. Now Jerry is overseeing the whole lot. And, you know, that's, that's vitally important because he has to have oversight as to, you know, to how to separate these things. It's an incredibly hard job because mm. he's essentially, you know, all... EVs, you know, mm. or SUV EVs coming into the future. So, you know, how do you get them apart? And uh, somebody like uh, in Jerry is invaluable. Mm. Well, it's a, that's a good point. How do you tell them apart? Graham, from a retail perspective, do you think customers genuinely are engaging more with this school of thought, you know, individualistic design, bespoke engineering? Are you educating people more about it as, a, as an OEM? What, how do you approach that? So I think it's a really good question because I think if you look at the, and you alluded to it, kind of the technology platforms and vehicles aligned with the visuality of them, what they look like, actually the underlying kind of state in automotive is how does that car driving experience make you feel? Mm. Yeah, we, we've moved forward from reliability. Does the car start in the morning? Has it got the tech in it? Fundamentally, most of the 
vehicles have got similar kind of levels of tech and interfacing into industry standard tech as well. So what differentiates you as a brand is kind of how you, that makes you feel. And that starts with your engagement in the buying experience. And then if you take that forward, it, it, the after sales experience, but actually the way you drive the car, the way the, the car makes you feel when you're on the road, starts many 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 years before on a on a on a, a piece of paper in a design office taken into an engineering world the house of brands is a really interesting concept it kind of sounds potentially like it's a netflix documentary in five years <laughs> right um but actually if you look at that the the jaguar land rover iconicism and history it it, it, it conjures up a real feeling, doesn't it, JLR? Whether it's a, you know, a 25, 30-year-old Defender or whether it's a brand-new brand new Defender, mm. there's an experience in driving that about how it makes you feel, about how you feel when you're on the road, around the security it makes you feel. And that's a real challenging thing to then embrace and take through a whole range and a whole model, which is why I think if you look at how designers and engineers are elevating within businesses, not just automotive, right? Johnny Ive kind of started that at Apple, didn't mm-hmm. he, where his voice mm-hmm. became almost second important. Did design a car as well, didn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's a Ford concept, yeah. brilliant looking thing. Yeah, and who knows what he's doing today, right? So, um, so yeah, I think, I think critically important because translating an experience on a, on, a, on a piece of paper through a design phase into the experience that I as a driver will then have critically important to determine whether I'm going to continue coming back and continue mm. engaging. So, yeah, really important. Yeah, you, you make a good point there about, you know, sort of like the brand, the brand heritage. Yeah. Um, because, you know, with all these new brands coming in, uh, especially from China, also Tesla, you know, the, the one thing they don't have is that heritage. And it's one thing that the the uh, the, the legacy brands can leverage. And uh, you need a good designer to do that properly. I mean, someone like uh, Lawrence Van Den Acker at, uh, at Renault, you know, I mean, he, he's he has got a, a you know this whole um, this whole garage full of classics that he can then draw on, which he is going he's drawing on. Um, for for example, the Renault Five, uh, the electric Renault Five coming next year. I mean, you know that car is well, it's going to be around twenty five thousand euros, uh, which is. You know, it's not bad, but it's still going to be quite pricey. So what you need to do, you need to be able to get people excited in a way that's not just about price, but it's, you know, that makes them feel good about yourself, as you said, you know. And uh, if you can successfully sort of draw from the experience of the past and then bring that into your brands, but also still make them relevant in the future. I mean, that's, Mm. you know, that's a superpower. That's that's really interesting. So would you suggest that some companies are maybe using the, let's call it retro, the, the retro appeal? as a means of justifying the higher prices they're having to charge for what are fundamentally small, cheap cars uh, that are expensive to build. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you you need that profit margin, and you haven't quite got the supply chain that the Chinese have got sorted out when it comes to the battery. So you've got to make sure that you know engage buyers in a different way, which is why you know we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of retro um, cars. I mean, we saw uh, the uh, ID two GTI. You know, they're going yes. to they're looking yeah. back, um, but you know, so that's that's what so that's something that that is a power that the designer has, and uh, you know they need to be able to push that through at a very high level mm. within the company to be able to do that, which is why you're seeing increasingly seeing them on boardroom positions, you know, so they have that the ear of the CEO make it happen. I yeah. mean, and someone like that and someone like uh, Renault's um, Luca De Meo, you know, you've got somebody who truly understands that. Well, he brought back the Fiat 500, didn't he? Was- well, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, he, he was all about marketing. He was all about getting the best price 
for the product. And uh, and a lot of that comes from, you know, the power of, you know, as you said, it's kind of how it makes you feel on the road. But that's, again, on the subject of Fiat 500, Renault 5, again, small city cars that command a premium because of the curb appeal, the style, the fashion aspect of that. That's got to be becoming more important. Again, we had the, the new Beetle, the BMW Mini. Are we seeing, do you think we're seeing a rise of that style over substance uh, ethos, do you think? It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you want to look at the success of, you know, what success is going to be in, in, in the future, you know, there's, a, there's a, certainly an essence of looking at what worked in the past, right? Yeah. Um, mm. And whilst, whilst the, the, the world we live in is moving at an enormous pace and technologies are kind of affording a huge amount of advancement, actually there is some comfort in going back and looking at a Mini and, and looking at a, a Beetle or a Fiat 500 from the 70s and 80s and having that, that emotional experience of what that take, took you back to, right? So, yeah, yeah whilst, whilst the, the luxury and uh, comfort of new cars is great, yeah, the, the reason why cars, I think, sit in our mindset so firmly is because they, you know, the cars that you've owned and the cars that you've driven take you back to a period in time, much like music. And I think if you, it, when you sit in a new Mini today, it does evoke those feelings of the, maybe the first or second car you had and the driving experience you had. But also you then kind of collectively look at it from a, an engineering perspective. The cars that are built today, there's a, there's a whole load of factors that go into making them able to be sold, right? There's the st- sustainability issues, which if I'm a, you know, probably looking at the, 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 the environment I live in, that's going to have a factor in what I buy. So kind of how, how's that car being built? How's the materials mm. being sustained? If I look at the, the, the legal kind of constraints on bringing a car to, to the road, um, you know, the, the limited amount of design that somebody can do on a car is actually quite small considering how, how, how much goes into it, right? So I think, you know, all of those things come together. And if I'm looking to, for a safe bet for the future, maybe looking slightly at what worked in the past is a good place to start. When it comes back to that, you were talking about the experiential aspect of, of owning and driving a car. Mm. If you can bring back connotations of previous good experiences, and I think that's, that's a lot of what that retro builds on. But it's becoming in, increasingly pertinent with the wave of new brands that are coming to market that maybe don't have that heritage to lean on. And so we're seeing established legacy marks build on what the successes they've enjoyed before as a means of cementing their brand appeal, I think, in the market. How do you think design can encourage customers to engage with those new companies? What are they doing, do you think, that that makes them stand out, that, that builds appeal? Well, I think I think there's there's two ways of doing it, right? There's look at what's working now and try and replicate it. Mm. And I think we're certainly seeing that with some of the visual design. There's a lot of similarities between how some of the new entrants coming into the market are are designing and building the visual element of the vehicles. But there's also a real luxury that if you're coming into something relatively new, you can kind of do something completely new because you aren't tied to that history and, Mm. and heritage. You know, if you're buying a... If you're buying your third or fourth iteration of one of the you know luxury German brands, you have a certain set of expectation about what you want. You know, I don't envy designers and engineers because, you know, from a design perspective, you know, small mistakes can have huge impacts in 
five to ten years of, of delivery of that vehicle so the smallest things we, we you know we're we're interesting people human beings we like something called we don't and there's not an awful lot in between mm. and small things can have a huge impact on whether we like it or not and an idea that sat on a drawing board 10 years ago may have a huge impact on whether that 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 vehicle becomes a design classic or actually is talked about just as much but in that negative yeah. connotation so so i think i think the new entrants have got a real opportunity to to, to, to maybe push it slightly as well, right? To, to change the kind of accepted norms of what vehicle design should look like, what the experience should look like. You know, Tesla did it, right? They, you know, Tesla's essentially a computer with wheels. It, it's, it's uh, when you sit in a Tesla, it doesn't have that luxurious feel of a, a BMW or a Mercedes or an Audi. But actually, that's kind of really honed in on a, a certain marketplace, and we're seeing we're seeing other brands now trying to sort of replicate that simplicity, aren't we? Rather yeah. than looking like cockpits um, mm. of, of airplanes. So, yeah, I think there's a big opportunity to try something different without that kind of risk of ruining that her- heritage. I think what you've done is you've highlighted the two very different approaches we see from these in these incoming brands, as it were. You've got the brands like Neo, which are very mm. much aping the sleek, minimalist aesthetic of. of BMW, of Audi, of Mercedes, and then a brand like Aura, for example, which has almost created a retro lineup. GMV uh, now, I think you have to call it. Don't you? Well, yeah, so they did back to GWM, which is a that's oh, a topic that's we could G- talk about in itself. They had some brand equity already yeah. in a name that they've now got rid of. Um, <laughs> Only because you've driven one, no one else knows what it is. Well, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. I mean, uh, yeah, it wasn't, well, it wasn't something I like saying. The, but, uh, the Chinese car from Great Wall Motors, yeah, that's right. But it's a yeah. retro car from a brand that has no. It is, it is, and it's an interesting thing to do. You know, you know, how do you engage uh, customers? Because because the Chinese brands have, uh, you know, I mean, they understand that design is incredibly important, which is why they've poached all these very good uh, uh, designers, uh, mainly from Europe. For example, you know, the head of former head of uh, Volkswagen Design, Klaus Zakoria, is now at Chang'an, mm-hmm. uh, an, an enormous Chinese car company that we've virtually never heard of over here because they haven't really imported. Uh, the you know Stefan Silaf, who used to work for um who used to head up design at uh, Bentley he's now working at uh, Geely so you know you've got these you, you, they understand that uh, you need that sort of emotional engagement and and they've done a cracking job you know some of those cars look, look absolutely excellent and, uh, but yeah so that's what the legacy does um car companies are facing they're facing people who know what they're doing mm. and uh, they've got these other elements as well but uh, you know i mean but i mean retro is one way of doing it but uh, you know you look at someone like Kia and uh, Hyundai uh, through you know they've uh, with Luke Tonkavolke who's in charge of uh, overseas design over there they what they have done is that you know these are brands uh, that they sit in the mainstream but it doesn't mean we can do some we can't do something amazing Mm -hmm. with them you know so uh, particularly with their electric cars they've decided you know look let's just let's create something incredible you know let's really break uh, you know sort of break tra- with tradition for the ev6 the kia ev6 you know i saw i was following one on the road today and it's been out for a while but it still looks it still, still looks, looks brilliant real head turner yeah. and uh, you know that's uh, and they haven't gone to necessarily with uh the retro style for that so yeah but that, you know that's all the power of a um of a designer and you know and the power of a designer who has the, the ear of the people at the top and mm-hmm. also the people at the top have to be you know open enough to to hear from these guys to say yes i'm going to okay that i'm going to spend the extra 
you know, 100 million or whatever to make sure the design is absolutely right. Because it's not just a design, is it? I mean, you've got the engineering as well, because underneath that car has to have all the hard points that will connect with this um, fabulous new design. You know, you have to be willing to spend the money on the fancy lights that uh, make it work, on the, you know, the glass house that mm-hmm. requires this little piece there that, uh, you know, is another 50 million. No, it's it's an, it's an incredible process. So that's why, you know, it's a getting you being willing to actually push is is i mean and and they're they're willing to push because they are you know they're this incredible moment where you could get it so right but also get it so wrong and be just lost in the tidal wave of new competition Mm -hmm. well do you think it's fair to say that certain designers certain companies are making a conceited effort to polarize rather than people please Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to stand out, haven't you? I mean, mm. we see that in China. You know, the, the the Chinese love a bit of uh, drama, don't they? So, you know, you've you've got to make an impact. And uh, I think we're perhaps not quite. You know, we need something a bit more sophisticated than a gullwing door or a, some flashing lights at the back, spelled spelling out your name or something. Mm. But you know, at the, but you know, the same impetus is there. You've You've got to get it right. I mean, look at BMW. I mean, you know, these are these designs aren't, you know, and they aren't there to ra- capture the, uh, the the admiration of every single person on the planet. Mm-hmm. That they're, they're honing in on a specific crowd, and that might alienate people. That uh, you, you know, in a way that you'd think, oh my god, that's going to ruin them, but it doesn't. Mm. There's an engineering angle as well, I think, and we're talking about design and engineering, but. They sort of they're codependent. You design around the parameters that the engineers set, and every designer and every engineer I talk to says they have they have to have a strong relationship with their counterparts. Do you think the enhanced functionality of new cars? New cars can do everything except boil a kettle, right? They can do everything. Um, are cars being designed around that? Is it harder to promote character when you've got to design a dashboard around a fifteen-inch? Uh, you know, massive TV screen that sits on top of the dashboard and that connects to your smart home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, you worded that quite nicely because I mean, ultimately, it will it will connect to your smart home, right? And uh, uh, I mean, it, it. You mentioned the word brands, and it's interesting. It made me think about people. In my view, people used to buy the model, right? You just you might aspire to the one, two, or three up, mm-hmm. but actually, recently, people have. People are buying into brands, right? It's you mentioned Kia, BMW definitely have it. You're buying into that brand and what that evokes, and so the, what I'm what I think I'm starting to see is there's consistency in the design across the models and across the range. You you get a level of experience that when you're when you sit in the car, whether it's the kind of entry model or the the most expensive within the range, there's some similarities that evoke that I'm driving this brand, I'm driving this model. If you then kind of align that to what we are all used to experiencing on a day-to-day basis with technology. So in my pocket, I've got a device that my whole life completely functions around. It does connect to my smart home. It's where I do my banking. It's where I search up any information I need, but it's small enough to fit in my pocket. Um, If you then evoke that into what we want want to experience when we're sitting in a car, that 
that functionality, that 15 inch screen, it's not a nice to have. It's almost a necessity now. It's as, it's as necessary as a, as a as a stick that makes the engine, whether it's uh, electric or petrol, go forward or backwards. Cars cars that don't have that, that we talked about Tesla. That the whole cockpit is ba- based around essentially the screen in the middle, mm-hmm. and everything is controlled through that. So there is, I suspect, a few years ago there was probably some slight banging of heads, but I think now they are design and engineering are kind of simultaneously linked because they both have to function very closely together to ensure that the experience when you're in the cockpit, when you are driving the car, really works. Because if it doesn't, it will turn you off almost as as much as if the car doesn't sound right or if the seat's slightly wrong or so on. Oh, I, I was thinking about this on the way here, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, the, the experience is so um, personal to the, that driver that they could be irritated by something that doesn't work quite right in that car. But that thing that would prevent them from buying that car again might be so mundane that they wouldn't even talk about it you know, to their best mate. You know, because it, it, to actually explain what it does and why they're irritated about it would take too long and it would be too boring. So how on earth can an engineer understand how, what their customer's going through, what, you know, how they're interacting with this sort of vast spread of, of uh, a new technology that, that, you know, that is now in their car? Whether that's of that's something connected to active safety, whether it's a glitch on the screen, whether it's uh, you know it could be anything, and but they have to make their decisions as to whether to expand on that aspect or keep that or you know or or you know to put it deeper into a screen or whatever it is. But uh, I I think they've got an incredibly tough job. And and the other thing is that now they're making these decisions now that uh, will impact the company for the next 10, 15, 20 years because as they move to a more sort of like they call it the software defined car. So you know the computers talk to can talk to every component and they're all in, interlinked theoretically uh you know there a couple of um supercomputers in the middle of the car will uh, will run everything some powerful software will ensure it all talks and it looks good on the screen and uh you know moving towards autonomous driving it'll keep you on the on the straight and narrow but you, you know, you you're making decisions about whether you do that yourself, whether you do that, you outsource that to a traditional supplier, whether you go to a supplier in California who has previously only worked with smartphones, uh, but understands the consumer experience on a on a digital on a digital basis. Mm-hmm. So you you're you're having to make these decisions, you know. And some of these engineers we've got here are, I mean, I, some of them have 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 the power. I mean, we, 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 uh, Ned Keurig, for example, uh, who heads up, um, who's now CTO at Stellantis, you know, he used to work for Google. These these people know what the, um, what's involved, mm. but whether you, you have to say to your CEO, look, this is what we need to do. It's going to cost a, a, a ton of money and it, we might not work. It might not work, you know, in the first iteration. We might, as VW experienced with the ID3, go through a period where everyone hates you. Mm. You know, anybody who gets in the car is forced to interact with a software system that isn't quite there yet. So uh, I, you know, it must be an incredibly tough job at the moment to make decisions. Or the other way, do you, you outsource the whole lot to someone who knows what they're doing, like Google, which is something that Renault has done, you know, um, 
uh, Gilles Bourne working at Renault at the moment. And, you know, uh, he, he, you know, they've, they've gone with, let's make Google responsible uh, for the look and the feel of the entertainment, right. you know, to get them working at a very deep level. Okay, we might not own everything, the IP, we might own the data, for, you know, or they might get access to stuff that we should probably be monetizing, you know, five years down the line. But... We get a card where the infotainment, you yep. get in and it works. I mean, I think uh, you've driven more Renaults than I have. I think they uh, generally agree to, have, agree to work. Yeah, I mean, well, I've driven here in an ID buzz. So the software gripes that you, uh, <laughs> right. that you mentioned, I am familiar with, uh, especially when I'm in a rush to leave the house in the morning and can't leave my space because the parking sensors haven't warmed up yet and that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, See, that, uh, that might be the thing that stopped you from buying the car next. No? Exactly. But again, coming back to a product where the design has probably already won you over. So ah. making that decision. Um, coming back to, you were just talking about Ned Keurig, really good example. Because I think what's important to ram home really is that engineering now does encompass that whole sphere, software engineering. And we're seeing companies make a lot of investment in building up software divisions, outsourcing, as you say, is becoming an integral part of lots of businesses. Thinking about Aston Martin, their new DB12, the, the big upgrade is the interior, the new infotainment. That is an entirely bespoke system. They, they used to bring in from Mercedes. They've now got their own interface, which is part of a, a, massively, updated, um, a massively updated cockpit. Hundreds of people up at Gaydon working specifically on Aston Martin software. What's in it for a company to invest so heavily in software now? And when does that road end? When do we reach a point where a car just does everything it can do and there's nothing more to give? Well, I don't know. This industry is always uh, it was moving on, isn't it? I don't think that we never get to the end. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have to understand your own software. You can outsource some of it, but, you know, you have to understand the software. I mean, Graham, you are, you are the interface of... OEMs and software and how that connects to the dealer side of it. I mean, are they are they getting to grips with it? I think I think that's a really interesting question because does does it ever end? No, but actually, if you look at the if you look at the actual purpose of a vehicle, it's a very simple tool, right? It, it, I mean, it replaced a horse and a car, and, and then an engine was put in a car, and then and then people started to kind of realise that they'd taken that as far as they could. So, can we make it look nice? Can we make it feel nice? Can we make it go faster? So, interestingly, I think that and Aston Martin's a really good example. Aston Martin are, yeah, they. The, you, when you mention Aston Martin, it conjures up a, a feeling mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. yeah, experience, expertise, history. Um, is there something interesting in a business that's based its whole its whole reason for being around design and engineering outsourcing what's fundamentally one of the key parts of the car going forward to somebody else because it's no longer yours and if your heritage is based on that kind of that mentality of you know it's our our experience it's our energy you're driving an aston martin Mm -hmm. but you do have a google system in it or etc or an apple system in it that all of a sudden the the bits of the vehicle design and the bits bits of the vehicle evolution they're not around the driving experience anymore they're not around the noise the power the the speed actually the growth is going to be in well what else can this vehicle do for the consumer what's the user experience so if you look at the way that software the way that software integrates in all of our life 
most of it we don't even think about now. It's a non-tangible thing. If we go back to the first time you ordered something off of Amazon, it was this incredible experience, and now everything is ordered, ordered from Amazon. You know, we're coming up to Christmas, and I'm, I'm not sure how many of you have been into a shop yet. I haven't, but I'm, to avoid it. But I'm pretty much done, right? right? You know, that the experience has changed. So actually, if you look at the actual experience of the car, I think there's an enormous room for growth around how the vehicle does connect. You know, how how does the vehicle connect to me and to, to how I live? Can the vehicle help me in my day-to-day -day life? Well, you know, can it remind me that there's um, my favorite coffee shop down the road? You know, and if, you know, mm. if I fancy a coffee, actually at the moment, that shop's not that busy, so I could just pop in. You know, when the vehicle needs a service, can it auto book it for me? Yeah. Based on my calendar's availability in the car. How do we then transfer that information so that the retailers or the OEMs can use it and use it to help me in my life better. And I think that's probably the development growth and design growth. It's exciting, but people are as scared of that functionality, I think, as they are excited about it, mm. because there's concerns around data capture. Mm -hmm. uh, there is concerns about the increasing uh, intelligence. The, the artificial intelligence is becoming more and more clever by yeah. the day. Security. Uh, data security, I think, is, is the big one. Do you think there is an obstacle there for, for car manufacturers in an engineering and a design sense? You've got to present this sort of cuddly image, we're the brand for you, but at the same time, we've got this technology that in 10 years' time could be cooking your dinner for you. And it's you're now a car engineer and you're having to deal with that. It's, it sounds like hell, to be honest. It's incredibly scary, isn't it? I think it, whilst, it's, whilst it's hugely exciting, the potential that AI the potential that data share, the potential that just standard technology can offer you. It's all around making your life easier, mm -hmm. okay? Everything we do is seeking, enabling us to have more time. And and in simplistic terms, enabling us to, do, to have more time means how do, I, how do I kind of get rid of the stuff that takes my time I don't really want to do the non-exciting stuff? And technology does does afford us that opportunity, right? We 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 said it on. I've got a banking app in my phone, which means I never have to go to a bank. In fact, I haven't got a bank. It's a it's only available online. That means I no longer have to go and stand in a queue on a Saturday morning to go and queue up for my time. But actually, I've now got a device in my pocket that if somebody's clever enough, they can connect to without me knowing and drain my funds. Right? Mm. It's, there's a big fear factor, but you put trust in the people that you partner with to look after that data correctly. You put trust in the companies that you work with to be ahead of the, the constraints, the controls and the risks that come in. And I think that's where if you circle that round from a branding perspective, that's why brand is so important because we put our trust in brands to look after us. We don't just buy from them and think, well, I'll see what that's going to be like. We spend a lot of time researching who are these people, are, you know, the car looks great. But actually, are they going to look after me? Is the aftercare going to be great? And that will extend into, you know, they've got all of this data about me, right? I've bought a car. They've got my bank details. They've got my, might even have my mother's name. They've got my, um, they've got my phone number, my address. All of those kind of key bits of data that we we laugh and joke about, but open up your world to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so you put trust in them, and that trust is built on demonstrating an, an earning of that trust. And I think that's probably where a lot of these brands are now. 
Yeah, and, and and that's the problem when it comes to you know the, actually the software part of it, you, you know, because you, you trust your brand to get that right as well. Uh, but you know that is a very new area within their company, and uh, there are plenty of examples where they're not getting right, and and you know that kind of shakes your confidence in the car and in, in, in other aspects of the car. Um, you know, I was talking to you know a very senior person from a car company the other day. You know, we were just sort of chatting, and uh, you know, it's like. Um, we were chatting about a car that I'd driven, and, uh, and he was, he, and he was saying, yeah, you know, I was like, yeah, it's great, it, it works really well. Oh, apart from, you know, um, I was going to say, apart from a few software glitches, but he came, he went in there ahead of me, you know. So like, yeah, yeah, that's I, I understand that, you know, it's not great, but we're a car company, we're not a software company, mm-hmm. you know. I mm-hmm. thought I was a very telling admission because um, they know they know that this stuff is really difficult, yeah, and, uh, and you know, to get that right is so important. But what is you know what is a, I don't know a Skoda interface. What is a, a, a an Aston Martin interface? You know when you're actually interacting with that screen there, how much of it has to be, um, you know, a representation of the car company and what they stand for? Does it re- does that really matter? Mm. Because what you're doing what you're doing is basically what you're doing on your phone. You know, you're, you're, it's imparting information to you. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to fill you with comf- fill you with you know sort of warmth about the brand. It just has to work. Yeah. You know, that's that's all you requires. So you know to to make that work, you go to somebody who does who knows how to do that. Probably they're a big tech company in California. At which point, what are you? Are you're you, you're an assembler of parts? Part, car companies have always been an assembler of parts, right? Um, mostly bought from outside the company. So you know you sort of become this sort of your problem is you become a sort of white goods, um, almost like a tier one. You, you, the brand is is now you know sort of all you've got. Um, because the actual digital side of it is, you know, kind of, it doesn't really matter that you, it's a, a branded, it just mm-hmm. has to work. And uh, that is the problem that they're facing. Yeah. And I, I think, actually, interestingly, you mentioned earlier about the interactions with the brand from, from the customer side. But as we move into the era, well, I think we're firmly in the era now of the online car buying journey, mm-hmm. your experience pre-purchase, pre-driving, of that system is going to be so fundamentally limited. You potentially don't know if it works for you until you have had the car for two weeks, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. Before anybody goes into a retailer to 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 touch and feel and smell the car, they've probably done an inordinate amount of research, and that research is readily available online. Mm-hmm. It's readily available in a conversation like this with friends or colleagues around. I really like the look of that car. What's it like? And to your point earlier. If somebody says, I'll tell you what, it's a brilliant car, but it takes me half an hour every morning to reverse off the drive because there's a, a, a glitch in the in, 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 in the, the parking. That's gonna that sits in your brain and in your mental checklist you start to go through it and say, Well actually that's gonna be a bit that's gonna be a real pain. I'm gonna maybe not think of that. You underestimate annoyances, don't you? What you do, and your point was really right, which is it's not big annoyances. We we live with big annoyances because we accept that occasionally things don't work. And we accept that probably the bigger it is, although it's the it's the easiest thing to fix. If you have a hole in your roof, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna 
cover that hole up really quickly. If you've got a tiny little leaky radiator, you're gonna, that's going to go to the bottom of your list of things to fix. <laughs> yeah. But it will drive you mad because at some point that's going to create a huge, big, damp spot in your floor. Yeah. So, so I think you know, the, the niggly things are the, the, the kind of the things that are a stamp in the book. And when that book fills up, all of a sudden, all of those tiny things become huge, right? And, and they steer you away. So the retail experience is incredibly important because it's your opportunity to genuinely engage in the customer and address those issues, right? So, you know, if if when we walk into a retailer, having done our hours of research, engaged with with colleagues, looked at, looked at when we're driving on the road at how great these cars look and so on, actually, when you go in and touch, feel, and smell, and engage in the car for the first time. That is actually the only. That's the first time, and probably the most important time, that you'll get that sense of experience. The first time you sit in that new car and you think, "This is a nice driving position. I like where the screen is. Actually, the handbrake's in the right place. If there is one, the, 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 actually, my arm sits quite nicely." All of those hours and hours and hours and millions of dollars of investment into all of those things coming together to mm-hmm. build to build the car. That's where it's critical that you've got that experience to, to, to take it in a true omni-channel style, all the research, all the talking into a, a, a tangible reality of, okay, this is it, I like it, mm. I feel good. And we use that word feel again, right? I feel good. Yeah, there are some really interesting, at the moment, uh, we've seen a couple of interesting approaches to quite small bits of the car that you wouldn't usually think about, but manufacturers have been able to cut production costs by, I think uh, Volvo, for example, puts the window switches in the middle now because it only requires one wire rather than two going through the doors. You can minimize the amount of cutouts, saves a bit of weight per car and probably a couple of meters of wire. And that all adds up to a pretty big saving. That's designing and engineering in a saving uh, and, you know, no cost to the customer really because they just reach that way instead of that way. Do you think? Yes, but the customer, well, the, you know, the danger is that the customer doesn't think like that. The customer is what said, why have you taken away something that I got used to and works very well? You know, you know, why are you redu- reducing the ability for me to do things that I've always done? You know, I mean, Tesla and Storks is the big one. And they're not, it's not just Tesla. Other people are doing it as well. Zika, I think, have got mm-hmm. rid of Storks in their new saloon, um, Chinese brand. Um so you've got to be very, very careful. Tesla can get away with it because they t- they have this amazing ability to bring their, most of their customers along with them. You know, they, they say, okay, you know, this is the future. This is what the future looks like. And there are a lot of their customers, not all, but a lot of them were not along. They go, yeah, okay, fine. I don't, you know, I, I, I can get down with that, put it on the screen. I can work with that. I'm, I'm, I'm done. But... You know, other car companies will struggle to do that, and they're going to have to do it very carefully and very gently. <laughs> and uh, but it does save costs, mm-hmm. and that's what the, you know. That's what a lot of these you know the, the, these uh, engineers on our power list, they have to make those decisions, and they're huge decisions. They're a tiny thing for the customer, but they're massive. And uh, you know, so you because you need to save money. Electric cars are more expensive. You need to f- focus on where you can cut costs, which just means going right back down to the basics and asking whether you really need that. Are you going to be designing it in a way that uh, c- will take cost out? You know, for, does it need a rear wiper? Does it, uh, you know, d- does it need those window switches? Does it need the stalk? Does it you know, need a whole host of other things, which, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, 
I don't think there's even a rear light in the back of the MG4. You know, that's a cheap electric car, right? They've they've done that. You know, you don't get standard sat nav because it all comes through on the phone. You know, mm. that, that, these are the decisions they have to make, and uh, it, uh, and you don't really know whether the customer's going to accept it yeah. until they get to the car. And well, uh, that's really interesting because Dacia has almost made a point. It's central to its brand image, isn't it? That it rejects the notion that everything should be a touchscreen and everything should be haptic. It, back to basics is the is the Dacia approach, it, and that's how it keeps cars relatively affordable. And it engages with those customers who rally against ADAS, who rally against uh, difficult to use climate control interfaces when you're when you're driving along. So you can you can use it very much to your advantage, don't you think that approach? Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but, but those are traditional customers. So, I mean, you're saying that they are saying back to basics, but actually, what is basic now is screen. Mm. A screen is the, the base level because you can digitize everything and and put features on there that you would have had to have made physically, and so that actually costs you more money by keeping with the traditional style. So when when Dacia says, I'm going back to basics, what they mean is I'm keeping with the traditional. Uh, I might end up actually costing them more money, but it, you know, resonates with their customers who, you know, don't want to have to change their perception of what it means to drive a car every Mm -hmm. time they get into a new vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think we're starting to see a lot more individuality in the way brands are approaching all these all these various different aspects. I'm quite amazed that we're sort of 38 minutes into a podcast about design and engineering, and we've not mentioned the Tesla Cybertruck once. So, uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks on all counts. Okay, go, on, uh, go on for a few hours. Should we keep it that way? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think. Well, here's, here's an interesting question, which is if 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 you think about it, I mean, you've mentioned Tesla, we've mentioned Tesla a lot, and design in particular and engineering, you, you always think about Tesla, right? But if 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 Mr. Musk decided that actually he was going to remove the screen and he was going to put in a, a rather analog view, go back twenty years, do you think everybody else would follow? Because <laughs> because yeah, because I think they say he leads the way once again. There you go, honest, yeah. Uh, Interestingly, right? yeah. So yeah. therefore, is it the brand or is it the engineering? That's a, a, it's it's a yeah. remarkable following, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, to have, to have cultivated whatever you think of of the man and the cars. It is remarkable that, that that brand has such a loyal, fearsome almost mm. Uh, mm. appeal attached to it. And the loyalty with which those customers follow the brand is astounding, really, even when they do something that you might say is objectively not good. Um, really, really interesting. I think what he's done, uh, the clever thing he's done is, is is make the break with the supply chain because the traditional manufacturers have always kept a link with the supply chain. I mean, the 48 volt thing, you know, the Cybertruck runs uh, on 48 volt uh, electrics mm-hmm. rather than 12 volt. Uh, other car companies wish they, you know, would have wanted to have gone to 48 volt, but the supply chain wasn't there. So they can't get the same cheap uh, parts that they could have done uh, because there weren't enough people um, making parts for 48 volts. So they, right. you know, they were kind of stymied with that because they, it would have been a huge cost jump. But what Tesla, what Tesla has managed to do is break that link with the supply chain, Tesla and its engineers, because they've, you know, they, they said, we want this. They've been kind of dogmatic about it. They said, we want this. So we're going to make it happen. And it, it is quite impressive the way, you know, that sheer bloody mindedness. They've mm-hmm. managed to you know, break that chain and force the suppliers in, you know, or, or make it themselves. If the suppliers weren't ready to go, ready to go on with them, along with them, they break they I mean, you know, a lot of these 
it's not the first car to have this sort of 48 volt system but it's you know it, it, it's sort of central to it and it's and it, it sort of leads the way pushes the way forward for others to then follow because you know he has created this sort of uh, market within the suppliers and uh, yeah i think it's a, it's a good thing you know it's a, it's a boldness he's he's Basically, shown other manufacturers how to do it, hasn't he? He sent he sent the document, the instructions. That he has, has he, he has, and you know, and and I think that's a, a that's a bit of uh, that's a bit of drama on the part on on the part of Musk. Fine. And I, and, I, and I saw that uh, Jim Farley at Ford tweeted that uh, I've got that. Thanks, you know, I appreciate that message received. Uh, he, yeah. What he didn't say was that you know. Well, we know this. I don't <laughs> it's think it's a bit. secret, yeah. you know. And I think, and, and and Musk has done it before with uh, on the batteries, you know, on the technology. He said, "Look, it's a, it's open source." I think he calls it, doesn't he? But it's it, you know, it's everybody knows it. It's what, but what it does is, and what Musk wants. I mean, and and this is why he sends it round. He wants other people to adopt it because then the parts that he he can then buy the parts cheaper from his suppliers. But he has made that first step, and uh, I think that's—I think that's very brave. And uh, you know, it's—it's uh, it, it, shaken up the car industry in a way that it needed to. So it's—it's it's good. Mm, yeah, well, technical technological advancement at this time when we're—I think we'll look back and we'll still see this as a nascent age for for electric cars, won't we? And autonomous cars, and all the other different sorts of cars that we're going to have in in a few years' time. So him leading that charge has only got to be a good thing, surely. Yeah, I mean, it, it it took somebody like him to push everybody forward because you know there was a lot of very there was a lot of incremental steps, but nobody was making the big leaps because it you know the car industry is very intertwined because everybody uses the same suppliers, uh, everybody follows everybody else. Mm-hmm. They don't really want to make a big leaps because of the cost implications of that. Of Musk was able to get the cash together to, you know, sort of ride out the pain that he had to go through. And he will do again, because Cybertruck's not gonna be easy. Um, so he has to go through all that. And, uh, and but he doesn't seem to mind it. <laughs> he see, and his investors are happy with his uh, that approach. The, you know, the share price is still phenomenally high. Uh, so, you know, he, he's given, everybody the push that they needed i think mm. we've talked about cybertruck unfortunately <laughs> yeah. what we've done there uh, but you can't you in can't the avoid context. It, can you? in context in context yeah. elon musk of course famously not a designer or an engineer but uh leading the charge for both i think it's fair to say in in that respect and uh, yeah w- whatever you think of the cybertruck as a in design and engineering terms it does everything pretty differently doesn't it so uh, it deserves all the all the headlines i think um I think before we get on to more Cybertruckness, that we'll we'll wrap that one up because that is about all, all we have time for. Big thanks to Nick and Graham for coming in. Uh, keep checking back for the rest of the Powerless podcast series and you can head to autocar.co.uk forward slash autocar hyphen business to download the physical list itself. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you.